Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. On the PowerPoint slide that you see in front of you, and if you're watching on your phone or a device, uh, you'll see these eight prophecies. And I just simply picked out eight uh, that the Messiah, the King, the coming one, uh, Jesus himself would fulfill. And I've given you the corresponding uh, places in the New Testament where you can find the fulfillment. And I've only done this just as an example And as I've said, as we move through the totality of chapters 52 and 53, uh, we'll pick up the rest of the 44 that are very specific in just these two chapters. And the reason I'm telling you that is this. As you look at your Bible, I think sometimes we are all tempted to say, is this really true? Was this actually written by God? Uh, Was it authored by the Holy Spirit and did holy men of old write it down, and is it what we call God's word? If it is God's word, which I know it is, I believe it is, and I actually believe tonight that to some degree I can prove to you at the very least that it came from outside of our time and outside of our space, outside of what we would call uh, our reality. Because the information is so specific... If we can prove that that information was written ahead of when Jesus was born, which we can, and we can prove that there's only one person that fulfilled all of these things, which we can, then this information came from someplace other than some old dude. And in fact, you would have to say the more specific it gets, also the more impossible it gets for it to be an accident or accumulation of a bunch of people getting together. And as we will learn, as we'll look at some of these things tonight, uh, very specifically mathematics and the Messiah, as we look at the specific things that are said about Jesus here in these two chapters, we're going to begin to deal with something that would be the law of compound probability. The more things that you put together in a link or a chain that have some type of probability, those things multiply one another. So if there's a 1 in 10 chance of something happening, and then you add something to it that also has to happen, and it is 1 in 10, you now have 1 in 1,000 chances. You multiply them. And so it ultimately grows exponentially is what we're getting at. And so when you start dealing with things like places and times that are completely out of control of the individual about whom these things are going to be written, you start to have extreme mathematic probabilities. The law of compound probability basically says the more things you add to it and the more extreme those probabilities are, the less likely it is to happen. And so when you start to approach things that get very large in their probability, then they are deemed to be impossible, ultimately. And so as we look at the things that we're going to look at tonight, 
if you have a single person who in Isaiah's case is going to be born nearly 700 years later, and then we have the Dead Sea Scrolls, which we'll look at those next week, which we now have copies of these very words that were written, physically actually put pen to parchment, pen to skin would be another way to look at it, at least 200 years before Jesus is born, and Jesus is the only one that can fulfill them, we have to consider the implication of the accuracy of that information. And I want to begin tonight by looking at that. And some examples for you as we kind of move forward tonight. How difficult do you think it would be? Uh, We just went through a presidential election. How difficult do you think it would be for you to predict the person who will win the presidential election in the year 2710. How difficult would that be? What would the probabilities of you guessing that? Well, there's several things you have to figure out. One is the population of the entire earth. Right now, that's getting close to some 8 billion people, right? So you have a 1 in 8 billion chance that you would randomly be able to select the person just based on the population of the earth. So as you start looking at these things, if you tried to pick just the city, currently there are about two and a half million cities, towns, and things that you could identify on earth as a population that's something other than just a collection of homes. And so today, if you were going to pick the city that the president was born in, it would be a one in two and a half million chance. And you're probably not going to guess that one. Amen? And yet... That is exactly what Micah did. He predicted uh, which city that Jesus would be born in, the Messiah would be born in. How difficult do you think uh, it would be for you to identify some specific religious leader uh, in advance, things of that nature, or a type of uh, capital punishment that wouldn't be invented for four or five hundred years? How successful do you think that you would be in in guessing those things. Now think up what we have here in the book of Isaiah, and there are 44 very specific things. How specific do you think you have to get to guess all those things correctly when you're talking about each one of them having probabilities in the one and maybe several hundred thousand or one in the multiples of millions, or one in the multiples of billions, how difficult does it become for you to put 44 things together and then guess that one person is going to come and fulfill all those things? And furthermore, even if you knew all of them in advance, some of these things are so specifically tied to the things that other people would do to Messiah or that they would be completely out of Jesus' control. For instance, uh, how, how do you tell someone in advance for his parents to go to a specific city that he would be born in even though they don't live there? How are you pulling that one off? That's a pretty specific thing, and yet the Bible tells us what city, Bethlehem of Epaphra, that the Messiah would be born in, and it tells us almost 500 years in advance. So these things, how do you arrange to be virgin-born? 
how do you con- how do you have other people consider you to be a prophet that's like Moses and they're the people that hate you and yet they echo that time and time and time again publicly Jesus isn't going to you know wander around with a specific group of things and say hey why don't you call me the prophet like Moses because if they thought Jesus wanted him to do that then they would not do that because they were trying to disprove who he was How do you arrange to be crucified? How do you arrange to be sold for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a common slave? These things are, in and of themselves, essentially impossible. So you start putting these things together, and you can kind of see where we're going. How hard would it be for Jesus to take 25 of those things, all of them things that other people would do to him, and somehow get his disciples to go around the region of Galilee and Jerusalem and say, hey, when Jesus gets here, why don't you wag your tongue at him? Why don't you despise him when he's hanging on the cross? Why don't, why don't you tell him to come down from the cross? These, these things were all out of his control. And the only way that you can look at those things when they're that specific and they're told that far in advance, is that they become highly improbable. Hence, I want to give you a little uh, explanation. This is a case of a spy from the Second World War. He was a traitor named David Greenglass. He gave atomic secrets to the Russians, and he fled to Mexico. His conspirators got together. Uh, They wanted to arrange some help for him to get him to the Russian ambassador, to ultimately sneak him into Russia. That's the the plan. The instructions that were given to the secretary that was going to meet with him are very specific. And it went like this. Once he was in Mexico City, he was supposed to write on a note to a person and sign the note as I. Jackson. Wasn't his name, but that's the name that he was going to use. After three days, he'd go to the Plaza de Colón in Mexico City, which has hundreds of plazas, and there are thousands of cities in Mexico. He would then stand before the statue of Columbus. There are over 650 statues in Mexico City alone. His right middle index finger was to be put in a guidebook. That would give you, if you're just using the fingers and not the thumbs, a one in eight chance of doing that. And then he was to approach, when someone approached and talked to him, he was to say, it was a magnificent statue. How many comments could you make about a statue? An awful lot of those. Let's just say it's millions. And that he was from Oklahoma, which is one of 50 states. Just to give you an idea, if you put all six of those things together and, and multiply their random chance odds of happening, it comes up to 1 in 10 to the 50th power or 100 quindecillion that one person could walk up to another person in a specific city in Mexico and say all of those six things randomly. That's one in the 50th power. That is the edge of mathematic impossibility. One in the 50th is, or to the 50th power, is basically deemed to be mathematically impossible. There's no random chance that that is going to happen by accident. That's just mathematics. Now when you look at what the Bible says about Jesus, we can move to a man that's north of here in Santa Barbara, Dr. Peter Stoner, and he decided to give his class, a mathematics class, a statistics class, 
the opportunity to kind of work on this particular equation. And so when you look at these, there are 485 pieces of information in the totality of Scripture in the Old Testament that talk about the coming Messiah or some portion of his birth or his treatment, his death, his resurrection, all kinds of things. Um, All of those pieces of information, by the way, are contained within the Dead Sea Scrolls somewhere. They may not all be on one scroll, but we have complete scrolls of the book of Isaiah, so we can just use the book of Isaiah, which is exactly what he went on to do. So if you start looking at these things, and you look at one man that's going to fulfill all of them, you start to run into some monumental conundrums. And so he puts this to his class, and they begin to work on these things. And I won't bore you with the results, but basically they got the things like fulfilling Micah 5.2, which is that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Um, It'd be about one in a chance of 300,000 or so. That's just one. So by examining eight of those specific prophecies, ultimately they, they, they begin to look at this thing and they go, wow, this is kind of crazy. And they came to the, the, the final number that if you just took eight of them, there would be about one in one chance of 10 with 17 zeros next to it. Now, for those of you that like math, that's a big number. It's a large number, but it's not a really large number. It's actually a tiny number, giving you some of the numbers we could use. Uh, and, and he went on to use his famous analogy of this to give you an idea how strange it would be that one person could fill all those things by accident. If you took the state of Texas, covered it about two feet deep with silver, silver dollars, took one of them, painted it red, threw it somewhere in the state of Texas. Now remember, it's two feet deep. It doesn't have to be on the surface. It could be anywhere in the two feet deep as well. And then you take somebody, blindfold them, and you say, there's the state of Texas. You can go anywhere you want, reach down and grab one silver dollar. You get one shot to pick one silver dollar. The chances of one person going to the entire state of Texas with it covered two feet deep with silver dollars and picking one by random chance is roughly one and 10 to the 17th power. Now, I'm pretty sure that most of you are going, hmm, I think that's pretty much impossible. But that's not remotely close to what we're dealing with when you're talking about biblical prophecy. We could go infinitely higher. So the results for that one means that you could just take, you know, say, eight of them, and you would come to something that's kind of sort of improbable. But if you took 44 of them, you would come to one chance in 10 to the 157th power. So we need to use a new analogy for you to understand that, uh, a new way to look at this. Now, most of you know that electrons are fairly small. Yeah, you got that. You can't see them. That's why we need electron microscopes to spot them. Uh, They're infinitesimally tiny to the human eye. So if you started putting them together, it would take 2.5 times 10 to the 15th power if you laid them end to end, side by side, to make a piece of matter about an inch long. If you could get electrons to stick next to each other. To give you another way to look at this, if you counted one each time and you counted four electrons for every second, day and night, it would take you 19 million years to count an inch worth of electrons. 19 million years. 
That doesn't even come close. So now we're dealing with 44 of these prophecies. If you take 44 prophecies, the number is so large that if you took electrons and made them into a solid ball the size of the known universe, you would need at least 50 of them. Now take somebody, put them in a spaceship, and do the whole Texas thing, go anywhere in the known universe, you can stop and with your electron microscope, you can look down, grab one electron in the entire universe, which is tightly compacted of nothing but electrons, and you still wouldn't have the random chance probabilities of selecting the one red-painted electron that would give you a random chance of selecting 44 of those prophecies without any type of information, by chance. Why am I telling you this? Because there are 485 of them in the Old Testament. There's not 44. That's just what's contained in the next two chapters of the book of Isaiah. They're all there, and we get to study them and read them. And so as we do this, the reason this is so important to you tonight is when you read your Bible, your Bible was compiled over 1,500 years. It was written by at least 40 different authors. It's comprised of 66 books. It's several thousand pages long, and it paints a single picture of really one thing. God's roadmap to redemption. He cares about you tonight so much, your life so much, that he has given us this information in our space and time domain so that we can look at it and go, where did this come from? There is no possibility this is an accident. It's mathematically impossible that one person could have fulfilled all these things that we're going to see in the next two chapters once we get past 51. In 52, it is impossible mathematically for somebody to have guessed or even be helped because the information that we're going to look at, we know for a fact that it was written before Jesus was born. And Jesus wasn't carrying it around. Neither were the disciples. In fact, almost no one had even a Torah scroll, just the first five books of the Bible. Literally no one had a scroll of Isaiah. So nobody was walking around, hey, you know, let me scroll out here because this thing, oh, by the way, is almost 50 feet long. Uh, Let's see, where was that again? Oh, yeah, Jesus. Could you hang on a second? Because you got a couple things out of order here. We got to get back to some of these things that you need to do while you're dying on the cross. Like cry out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. David said that a thousand years before Jesus hung on the cross. So church, your Bible is trustworthy. It contains information that could not possibly have come to this earth by human means. It's far too accurate. 
And so as we look at these things, they're not just pieces of information because I say so. They're pieces of information because God said so. And he's trying to make sure that you understand he said so. So look at your Bible as though God's talking to you. This isn't some thing that you pick up and go, oh, well, you know, it's my Bible. It literally is God's word. It came from him. It was authored by him via the Holy Spirit. It was put pen to paper by men. Those men were instructed exactly what to write. They wrote it faithfully, and it has stood the test of time. Did Jesus fulfill these things? Oh, he most certainly did. Were they mind-bogglingly random to life in his day and time? Yes, they were. Were there component parts of it that when you look at it, there's zero chance that they were accidental? Absolutely. And so if God would take care to do that, he's taking care for a reason. It's not just so you can know random facts. It's so that you can trust the message contained within the totality of Scripture. He wants you to know him. He wants you to know that Christ came for a reason to die for you. And so make sure you get the message behind the message. Back in chapter 50, which we looked at several weeks ago, and I want to just highlight some things before we move to chapter 51. You have this incredible prophecy of the servant that's going to come. Remember that the Jewish people had turned away from God. And this is important as we get to chapter 51. They had turned away from God. Now, for me, when I think about people whom I've already spoken to and they don't do what I tell them to do, if you have children, you know this can be a kind of a large source of frustration with your children, right? You instruct them, you tell them what to do. You say, you know, if you do this, it'll go good for you. If you do this, it'll go bad for you. If you do these things, it's going to work out for you. If you do these things, it's not going to work. And when you tell your children that, you kind of expect to not have to do that over and over and over and over and over again. They're going to get it, and they're going to do it, right? It's exactly why James writes, Be therefore doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Because what God has said, God actually intends for us to do. And so back in chapter 50, the Jewish people had turned away. And that chapter reminds us that that the Lord purposely spoke to his own people first. That he came to them first. That he gave them the law first. He gave them the feast days, which clearly paint pictures of Jesus. He he spoke to them in such wonderful ways, but they kind of turned their back away from the Lord. And and so he says, I'm going to send a servant that's going to give you an even stronger understanding of the message I've already given you. And again, this is where it gets to us as parents or or to us as sojourners on this earth with our fellow human beings. When you have to learn something the third, the fourth, the fifth, or the tenth time, very often as parents, you have to kind of ratchet up the consequences of those actions, right? Because you want your children to understand that particular thing. And so at first it might be, well, you know, there's no cell phone tomorrow if you keep doing that. And then there's no cell phone. There's no TV. You know, you go through all these things. And so God was speaking to the Jewish people. He said, well, if you, if you just turn and do what I ask you to do, it will be well with you. You'll live long on this earth. 
And they wouldn't do it. And so God is now going to send them the most extreme example of how much he loves them in what he's going to allow them to go through and then tell them about the coming Messiah that will solve the real problem. Because the real problem was not the law itself. The real problem was not the feast days. The real problem was not the Assyrians or the Babylonians. The real problem was the heart of the average individual Jewish person. And the real problem is your heart and mine as well. We have heart problems. Right now in this country, we don't have political problems. We have a collective heart problem. That's the problem. If you want to know what the problem is, we have a collective heart problem. People do not love like the Lord loves. They're doing everything exactly the opposite of what the Bible says to do. And so consequently, we have exactly what you'd expect from telling God we're not going to do it his way. We have problems, serious problems. The Jewish people kind of did the same thing. They turned their back on the Lord. And so in chapter 50, it really ends with this picture that if they would trust the Lord, if they would submit to the servant, if they would commit themselves to him, that the Lord would heal them. And so now he's going to tell them a little bit of a, you could look at this chapter 51 as kind of like an interlude. It's like, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send Messiah. And then chapter 51 is this interlude to where he speaks to the children of Israel directly to remind them of what he expects from them. Verse 1, it begins, chapter 51, the book of Isaiah. The Lord is calling here to the nation of Israel, to his people, and he, he, he wants them to listen. And so he says, listen to me, you who follow after righteousness, who seek the Lord. Because you see, within the children of Israel, there were still people that wanted to follow the Lord. There were also people who didn't want to follow the Lord. But there were people who wanted to follow the Lord. And so he says to them, Look to the rock from which you were hewn. And in a way, you can, you can see the gospel message in this as well to believers in Christ. Christ is our rock, amen? He's actually the chief cornerstone. We're actually cut from him. That's why you're called a Christian, a little Christ. You're, you're a little pebble off the big rock. And in the hole from the pit from which you were dug. Every last one of us was in a hole before we met Jesus, Amen. And we need to be pulled out of that hole. That was your B.C. days, your before Christ days. So these two important things here in verse 1, we have to follow after righteousness, seek the Lord. That's what Jesus said there in, in the Sermon on the Mount, specifically in the Beatitudes. Blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness. Amen? The, the goal of everyone who loves the Lord is to have a desire for the things that God wants for us. What does he want for us? He wants righteousness. He wants our living to match up with what his word declares his children should be and do. And so this is a picture, really, of your salvation experience. But he's speaking to the Jewish people. And he's basically saying, look, I want you to get back to where you came from. I want you to get back to to following after Abraham. Abraham was known as a man of righteousness. Amen? They, They came from Abraham, the lineage of Isaac. They came from Jacob, Jacob. They should have been righteous. And this is the crazy thing about our lives. God keeps reinforcing the message that he's already given us. 
we have a heritage. In verse 2, it says, look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. Now, what's unique, we can look at it now, and, and they could have looked at it then and known the same things as well. What's unique about Abraham and Sarah? What's the most common thing about Abraham and Sarah? Faith, amen? They were people of faith. Righteousness comes by faith. Faith is a gift to us. For by grace you've been saved through faith. Grace is the evidence of righteousness that's in our lives because we're God's kids. That's gifted to us and it comes to us by faith. And so he says, look to the faith of Abraham and Sarah who bore you. For I called him alone. Where was Abraham when he got called by God? He was in a heathen nation. He was in a faraway country. He was concerning himself with material goods. He was basically wealthy right where he was at. And God called him out of that existence and into a land that the scriptures say he knew not. And oh, by the way, it was on the other side of one of the world's largest deserts. So big is that desert that Abraham had to take the route north. He would have had to go up the Euphrates, the Tigris River, up into modern-day Turkey, and across Turkey through Syria, Syria to Lebanon, from Lebanon down into the land of Canaan. A journey of some 1,200 miles. And so Isaiah is picturing this as he speaks to the Jewish people, and he's saying, I called him alone, I blessed him, and I increased him. He was already wealthy. But God had something else for him. God wanted to do a new work in his life. And I think for us as a church, we're already wealthy in that sense. We're already in Christ. We already have a wonderful church. We have all kinds of things going on. But I think the Lord is speaking this message to his church. And I mean the church in the world, the church in general. He's saying, I want to do something with you, but it's going to be a work of faith. And you've got to be willing to go on that journey of faith. Abraham had to be willing to go on a journey of faith. He had to be willing to step out. I guarantee you Sarah was going, but honey, and this is not a lack of, or any greater evidence of faith in Abraham than it was in Sarah, but I guarantee you Sarah's looking at the flocks and looking at the house and looking at the, the life that they were living and so saying, you know, well, you know. It's always hard to step out in faith. And he says in verse 3, Isaiah speaking, for the Lord will comfort Zion. Now Zion, when you see it in the Old Testament very specifically, the easiest way for you to interject some thinking there is to just say national Israel. Because that's really, it can mean Jerusalem itself, Zion, the holy city. But it generally speaking is speaking of Israel proper. In other words, the collective national Israel. For the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort, and you can see it actually here, all her waste places. He uses the, the gender uh, of her. This is, this is his bride. This is his people. And he will make her wilderness like Eden. Her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in it and thanksgiving and the voice of melody. And so God's speaking of a day that's future, a day when they're restored, a day when they're righteous. You see, here's the problem that Israel has faced from then to now. They had all kinds of law. They had all kinds of rules. They had all kinds of regulations. They had a ton of religion. 
but it had failed to reach inside of the heart for most people. Not all. The early church was almost entirely Jewish. So it's not all. But most people trusted in external righteousness. Things that they could do for God. Things that they would do that would, in essence, show other people, of course I'm righteous, here's the things I do. That's why by the works of righteousness is no one justified. It's not about doing works. It's about having a heart that's right with the Lord. That's why verse 1 says righteousness is the issue. Coming out of the pit is the issue. In other words, right, righteousness and repentance. You could link those two things there. And so God's speaking about a day when national Israel is going to be in full bloom, full glory here that still hasn't actually happened if you put in the main criteria here of righteousness because righteousness only comes one way, amen? If you're saved here, you're completely righteous as far as God's concerned. You are positionally righteous before a holy God even though you yourself are still a sinner. Why? Because you have believed in the only begotten Son of God the Father. You've rested in the price that was paid for your sin When Jesus died on Calvary's cross, he took care of your debt. So in that sense, you are sparkling clean. Your sins have been made white as wool. You are actually positionally righteous before a holy God. And oh, by the way, that is the only way that you can be positionally righteous before a holy God. Because the only way that you can be saved is to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by Him, amen? So for the Jewish people, God is pointing them towards the servant. Why? Because the servant is the source of salvation. He's saying, look, here's what I want to do. Here's how you're going to get there. It's going to be this coming one. You see, the nation Israel still had some troubles. They still have some troubles. They're doing infinitely better in the land today than most places on the face of the earth, actually. But they're still one of the, if not the, most hated people group on the face of the planet. They're they're surrounded by people that would quickly and swiftly wipe them out if they actually had the opportunity to do it. There's a news article today. Syria is sending more ballistic missiles into Lebanon. Now, we sit there and think about, okay, that's two countries, and that's a long ways. No, it's about 35 miles. It's close. Israel gets rockets launched into it almost every day. For the most part, they get shot down by an Iron Dome missile battery. But, but they're still clawing and scratching, and even though they are prosperous, even though they are generally what we would say a wealthy, they're certainly in that order of first world nations that they have everything one could imagine. They have tremendous medical care. They have great social services. People, as a general rule, do very well there. Even people that say they're not actually do get tax advantages and all those kind of things. Israel's a great place to live. But they're still missing the one ingredient that's being highlighted here, and that's internal righteousness. That's a heart that is free of sin because Christ paid the price for it. 
And so that's why what's coming next in 52 and 53 is where it is. God's saying, this is what I want to do, but this is where you are. And what God's word tells them is something they didn't want to hear. And the reason I'm saying this is people will often ask, well, you know, why would God, you know, the, when you read the book of Revelation, it's just like, it looks like God's just really going to come unglued on the world. Yes, he is. Eventually, after watching the events of yesterday, I was kind of like, well, maybe we're going to get raptured soon. Because this is nuts. This is crazy. How can this possibly be? This is America. This is not, you know, this, this isn't Bolivia or someplace where there has been a coup or Argentina. And again, I'm not knocking those places. I, happen, I have some friends in Argentina. But they've had coups. This isn't like the overthrow of some dictatorship. This is the one place in America where you, you know, we are that nation that everybody else looks to and, well, someday we're going to have the freedoms that America has. This is crazy. And yet, in a very strange way, Israel was doing much the same thing. They were trusting in the temple. They would eventually trust in the law itself. They would trust in priests. They would trust in all kinds of things. But they weren't trusting in the Lord. And so they went through times of material prosperity, and then God would knock that down. And then they would go through times of religious prosperity, and God would tamp that down. But there is going to come a time in the nation's history, and I don't believe it's too far down the road, that Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7 reminds us of, for alas, the day is great so that there's none like it. And when you read that passage, it kind of strikes you. What God is saying is that Israel is going to go through something that no other nation has ever gone through. And then he says, it is a time of Jacob's trouble. And of course, when you see the name Jacob used in a collective sense, it's the children of Jacob. It's the same as Zion. It's collective Israel. It's a time of Israel's trouble is another way to interpret that verse because we kind of know who the players are. But, 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 he, who is that? Jacob, Jacob, Israel, will be saved out of it. That the purpose for that time of great trouble that Israel will go through, that the Bible declares to us is going to come, that we know is Daniel's 70th week, that thing that we call the tribulation, those chapters 6 to 19 in the book of Revelation, these things that bold judgments and trumpet judgments, these scrolls that are unrolled, and it just seems, why would God do that? The answer is he still loves the Jewish people. And he intends for them to be saved. He wants them to be exactly what is said here, righteous and dug out of the pit. But there's only one way to do that. There is only one name under heaven, exactly as Peter said, book of Acts, chapter 4, by which men must be saved. It's not through religion. It's not through affiliation with a religious group. It isn't through law-keeping. 
It's not through all the stuff that you might be able to do that would say, hey, I did these things, so I must be righteous. It is through personally knowing the one and only Savior. God still has a plan to bring Israel to that place. And you're saying, well, why would God set this up right here between this chapter that clearly speaks about Messiah, the servant, and two chapters which are going to describe him in minutia, in, in great detail? Because he's basically telling them, look, when Messiah comes, he's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. And no one comes to me but through him. I'm only going to send one. That's why it was so remarkable that they started calling him a prophet like Moses, but greater. He was the greatest of all the prophets. Even the rabbis acknowledged that. But they wouldn't bend a knee. One day, King Jesus is going to sit in judgment in Jerusalem on the throne of David. That day's coming. He goes, oh, that'll never happen. Really? Are you sure? Because I think the information that's in this book came from someplace other than earth. God told us those things for a reason. What is the reason? Because he means what he says and says what he means. He's trying to point us to the one true king. He's trying to remind Israel, look, you revered King David. You worshipped Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The tombs are still, you can go visit Abraham's tomb. You can go visit Isaac's tomb. You can go visit Rachel's tomb. You can go visit all these crazy... When we travel to Israel, there's some pretty amazing things to go see. But you know what? Unless you know Jesus personally, those things are exactly what Jesus said to the Pharisees. They're full of dead men's bones. Because God doesn't really care about those tombs. He cares about your heart and he cares about the hearts of the Jewish people. And so he says, verse 4, Listen to me, my people. Give ear to me, O my nation. For the law will proceed forth from me. And I will make my justice rest as a light of the people. My righteousness is near. Now check this out. My salvation has gone forth. You know, interestingly enough, the Jewish people really never got to the place that they actually understood salvation. They understood atonement. They actually understood righteousness to a degree. They understood justification to some degree. But salvation, personal freedom, having been saved from the wrath of God, they didn't have that. What they had was they looked forward to the Day of Atonement every single year. A time of national mourning where they would again confess their sins and for another year there'd be another scapegoat, there'd be another blood offering, there'd be another sprinkling on the mercy seat. And then for that next year, they would rely on that putting away of the sin. All the while sinning and collecting for the next year. You see, they didn't know salvation. It wasn't permanently taken care of. As we believe in Christ, we are actually 
saved. Amen? For by grace you've been saved through faith. What are you saved from? You're saved from the wrath of God. The wrath of God abides on those who do not know him. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of life is righteousness in Christ Jesus. Amen? You see, he's he's posing this question to the Jewish people. I'm going to send you a vehicle of salvation. He's the servant. And this is why this passage is so important as you're sharing with people who are Jewish. It's like you can actually sit down and talk to them about Isaiah 52 and 53. You know, these are the things that your forefathers knew about Messiah. And here's what he said right before he presents the King of kings and Lord of lords. My righteousness is near. My salvation has gone forth. My arms will judge the peoples. My coastlands or the far places will wait upon me. And on my arm they will trust. This is a picture of the children of Israel universally trusting the Lord for salvation. This is not trusting in the temple sacrifices. This isn't trusting in the Day of Atonement. This isn't trusting in the Feast of Trumpets. This wasn't them building a booth and being happy. This was the problem actually put away. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look to the earth, for the heavens will vanish away like smoke. Check these things out. Look what God's saying. He's reminding them, look, this earth is not your home. One day, this earth is going to disappear. Scripture is very clear on that, by the way. The earth will grow old like a garment. Should we care for the earth? Absolutely. Should we take better care of our planet? Absolutely. Should we do what we can to reduce waste? Absolutely. Should you eat kale? Never. <laughs> Hallelujah. No, I mean, we're, we're, we take care of our bodies and we talk about all these crazy things. And it's just like we got to do this and, you know, global warming or climate change, whichever you want to call it. All those things have some merit as far as taking care of humankind. But if you leave humankind intact and humankind of any kind perishes in their sin, then the real problem is not this earth, is it? The real problem is the eternity that you then face without salvation. That's why when people come to me and say, oh, we need to get... No, I need to get excited about preaching the gospel and teaching the word of God so that people can come to faith and be saved. Because if I help you live to be 100 years, but as Jesus said, you die, what profits a man if he gains the whole world but then loses his soul? And the answer is it doesn't. It's, it's the worst thing in the world because you had all this satisfaction in these things. And so God is telling them, listen up. Hear this. This earth is going to grow old like a garment. And those who dwell in it will die in like manner. If you've ever wanted to know if God's predicted that you're going to die, there it is. Every one of you, there is never going to be a human being by his own will or her own will that lives forever. If you live forever, you're either going to live forever with Jesus or without Jesus. But you ain't staying here forever. I don't care if they cryo-freeze all of y'all. 
They stick you in something and figure out a way to bring your dead carcass back to some kind of life. You are now Franken-Christian. You're still going to be dead at some point in time because the Bible says you're going to die. Everybody does. I actually think it's an act of God's grace. Feeling my knees lately, it's like, Lord, yeah, heaven. (laughs) The earth's going to die, and so are you. There's an escape clause to that called the rapture of the church, the thousand-year reign of Christ, the millennial reign. But ultimately, you're going to pass from this earth, even this earth is going to be made over. But notice what it says in verse 6, but my salvation will be forever. That is a picture between the eternal and the temporal. The earth and you are going to croak. But my salvation is forever. He who does the will of the Father, say it with me, abides forever. Amen? You do that by being found in Christ. He's presenting the gospel to the Jewish people in this passage. He's saying, here it is. I'm sending you the servant. Here's what it's about. And my righteousness will not be abolished. That's eternal righteousness. Again, there's only one way to have that. It's by being found in him. Interestingly enough, we are now fairly certain that as the universe contracts, we believe the universe will get to a certain point and then ultimately it will collapse back in on itself, shrink back down, probably get sucked into a black hole, and then probably re-explode. So actually, science is actually coming to terms with someday the whole universe is going to get rolled up like a scroll. It's like... (laughs) Dr. Adam Rice, Dr. Brian Schmidt, the, the guys that found dark energy and dark matter, all believe this. It's actually what the Bible says as well. One day this universe that we live in is going to get a do-over, a remake. And it's not going to be gradual. 2 Peter chapter 2 reminds us that the earth is going to, in essence, be roll up, vanish. Jesus himself said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass. Matthew 24, when we get there, we'll see at the end of Luke as well. Heaven's going to vanish. But the word of God, not going to vanish. 2 Peter 3 tells us the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. Amen? So God's actually showing the the Jewish people. It's like, look, Israel, he's talking to Jacob. He's saying, look, Abraham's descendants, listen up. There's going to be a a world one day that doesn't know decay, doesn't know death, doesn't know disease. There won't be any COVID-19. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen? No masks. You're going to be praising Jesus all day, every day. Before you turn into one of those weird people that believes that we're all going to be fat little babies with wings. The Bible doesn't say that. There's a few things we do know about heaven. One of them is we get to eat. Marriage, supper of the lamb. Amen? 
We're going to sit down and chow down. Now, I think it's going to be vegan ribeyes because there's no death, but they're going to taste the same. No, it's, it, there's no death. There's no dying. There's a new heaven and a new earth and all the things that mark this one, like the laws of thermodynamics, that all things tend towards decay, disorder, chaos, that things die, including you, which the Bible just identified as an absolute. You're decaying. You're not getting better. What's the answer? An eternal righteous kingdom. Amen? That's the escape. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, verse 7. You people who, whose heart is in my law. Do not fear the reproach of men, nor be afraid of their insults, for the moth will eat them up like a garment. The, wool, the worm will eat them like wool. Look, what did Jesus say? When he was talking about heaven, he said, where the worm dies not, and neither is the fire quenched. Basically, they're being told, look, there's an option. It's righteousness or it's eternal damnation. You see, some people think that, you know, this concept of hell isn't taught in the Old Testament. It is, absolutely. You got a choice. But my righteousness, notice it, will be forever, and my salvation from generation to generation. It's this contrast. He's setting the stage. He's saying, look, you can have your choice. And the crazy thing is, it's believing in him. It's not doing for him that causes us to have that right standing before God, which is what righteousness actually means. Awake and put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the ancient of days. In the generations of old, are you not the arm that cut Rahab apart? And that picture there of Rahab is actually an illusion, and you can see it back in chapter 30, uh, to, to, to Egypt and wounded the serpent. What happened? What, what did Isaiah already say? What's the book of Genesis say? Yes, the serpent would bite the heel of Messiah, but Messiah would crush the serpent's head. So there's going to be some affliction for the Lord. There'll be some affliction for his people. But know this, one day the enemy's going to get his final due and he's going to be gone. Out. And I don't know how many of you have been asking the question lately, you know, why doesn't God just come now? Why does he just stop this madness? Because he loves people. He loves lost people. He cares for people that don't have his salvation. And he cares so much that he leaves those of us who do here for a while longer. Yes, you might be suffering a little bit. We're doing that collectively together, but there's an end to it. It isn't going to last forever. This craziness is not going to go on indefinitely. Even if it lasts the rest of our lives, that is a very short period of time. Because notice what it says. His righteousness lasts forever. His salvation from generation to generation. It's drawing attention to the eternal nation that we are as those who are saved. We're an eternal people, an eternally saved people. We're not kind of sort of okay for a little while. We who are saved are saved. God's not asleep, church. 
It may seem like it from time to time, but God is not asleep. 121st Psalm clearly says that. That God doesn't sleep, he doesn't slumber. God's got his eye on every Egypt, every chunk of the world, everything that comes against you. And so that they would understand that, look at verse 10. Are you not the one who dried up the sea? Okay, Egypt was a formidable foe, amen? Egypt took Israel captive for 400 years. That's where the Jewish people learned to make mud bricks, amen? Every one of you has gone to Sunday school. You did some craft where you took peanut butter and glued together mud bricks, amen? You were the Israelites for a day in Egypt. That was your deal, and then you got set free. And you crossed over, dried up the waters of the great deep and made the depths of the sea a road for the redeemed to cross over. Who crossed over? Every last person who trusted the blood of the sacrificed lamb. That's the only people that crossed over. Who didn't cross over? Those who didn't trust. And in fact, they died in the canyon of their disobedience, didn't they? As the Red Sea opened up, those who went over by the blood were saved, and those who tried to get there on their own power died. These are all pictures of your salvation experience. That's why they're in your Bible. That's why they coexist together as these beautiful pieces of God's plan to speak to us about how much he loves us. I'm always amazed when people discount this particular event. They're, oh, you know, they were probably at the Reed Sea, which is actually, there, there's kind of a lake at the, at the Nile River mouth on the Mediterranean, and it actually dries up periodically. And they say, well, you know, that would only be a foot. And, you know, they, they make it sound like if you watch the Discovery Channel, well, you know, and the wind could blow and the water would go over there and, you know, dry up and people would cross over on it. That actually creates an even more difficult miracle because then you have to figure out a way that the entire Egyptian army died in a foot of water. It doesn't actually solve anything. It just creates a different miracle. It's like, no, God is a God of miracles. He does what he does because he's God. And so the ransomed of the Lord shall return. And come to Zion singing. What did the ransom of the Lord do when they came out of the wilderness? You see, they were disobedient in the wilderness. They got to stay there a while. But once they got to Canaan, what did they do? They started singing. They started having homes. They started growing grapes. They started having a life. With everlasting joy on their heads, they shall obtain joy and gladness. Sorrow and singing shall flee away. You see, ultimately when we are delivered finally by the Lord into our heavenly home, there isn't going to be any of the things that trouble us here. And I was like, we, I don't even know how many phone calls we're getting every day of, you know, can you, you know, somebody died from, you know, this or that. And we're, it's like people want us to do memorial services. We're doing all this counseling, all these things online. And I know people that are, that are engaged in that 
activity of counseling on a, a professional basis are, their schedules are so full, it's mind-boggling. Why? Because people want answers. They want to be told it's going to be better. They want hope. And here the Lord is offering exactly that hope. Look at verse 12. I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die, the son of man who will be like grass? Look, that's why Jesus said there in Luke chapter 12, don't be afraid of those that can only kill your body. And after that, have no power, but rather fear him who after the body is killed has the power to cast your soul into Gehenna. Fear him. Look, dying isn't the worst thing that can ever happen to you. Dying without Jesus is the worst thing that can ever happen to you. Dying might be the best thing that ever happens to you. Seriously. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking here, heaven, I'm choosing there. That's why he says, I am he who comforts you. You should not be afraid. That's why Proverbs 29.5 says the fear of man brings is a snare. When you start fearing people and what people can do and what people say and all that kind of stuff, you start getting snared by the things of this world. The Son of Man, people are, are, are like grass, which is here today and gone tomorrow. I was reading an article in Archaeology Magazine, and they, they were doing this excavation in a city in Poland, and they started putting in a road, and they, all these tombstones were flipped over. And it was actually a Jewish cemetery from the Second World War. And, and the faces of the tombstones are perfectly preserved. But in, in Jewish religious culture, they can't reuse them. They can't reestablish them. So they're figuring out what to do with them. They're going to be kind of like pieces of art, really, for the families. But you know what? Those people are buried underneath that road. So they're having to dig all these bodies up and reinter them and do all these crazy things. Look, we want to do that because we want to honor our ancestors and you know, we want to do what we can to preserve their memory. But the fact of the matter is, this earth is not our home. Those dead bones are not you. That headstone is beautiful as some of them are. They're gorgeous. Many of them are actually polychromatic. They have lots of different colors on them and they were highly decorated. They were flipped down in the mud and you would think it's disgraceful, but the bigger disgrace is to not be with Jesus. And so we need to have our eyes focused on the right things. And he says, and you forget that the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundation of the earth, you have feared continually every day because of the fury of your oppressor, but you forget God. It's like you're worried about the Assyrians, you're worried about the Babylonians, you're worried about taxes, you're worried about COVID, you're worried about the presidential election. You're worried about the Senate race in Georgia. You're worried about all these things. But do you know who your maker is? You really don't have a whole lot to fear. It doesn't mean we don't get concerned with the things of this life. Everybody wants it to be better than worse. Amen? If you don't, again, we need to talk after service. You should want it to be better rather than worse. We don't want you to be, you know, masochistic about anything. When he has prepared to destroy and where is the fury of the oppressor, the captive exile hastens that he may be loosed. He should not die in a pit 
His bread should not fail. But I am the Lord your God. Check this out. Look, you're worried about look, everybody worries about dying. But who's your God? Who divided the sea whose waves roared? The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth, and I have covered you with the shadow of my hand, that I may plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth and say to Zion, You are my people. He's saying, Look, you want things my way. You don't want what you can get yourself. You want what I want for you. Awake. Awake, stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury, you've drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling, it's drained out. I'm not sleeping, God is saying. I'm fully awake. I've watched everything you've gone through. I know your comings and your goings, and it's true for Israel, it's true for you. There is no one to guide her among all of the sons that she has brought forth, nor is there any who takes her by the hand among all the nations that she has brought up. In other words, they were lacking in spiritual leadership. But these two things come to you. Who will be sorry for you? Desolation, destruction, famine, sword. By whom will I comfort you? During that time of tribulation, there's only going to be one comfort, and his name is Jesus. It won't be the world. The world's never been a source of comfort. Can make some things better than worse. Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of all the streets, like an antelope in the net. They're full of fury of the Lord, the rebuke of your God, and therefore, please hear this, you who are afflicted. And drunk, but not with wine. Thus says the Lord, the Lord your God, who pleads his cause of his people. See, I've taken out of your hand the cup of trembling, the dregs of the cup of my fury, and you shall no longer drink it. Who's coming next? The servant, the Messiah. How's he taken the cup out of everyone's hand? Jesus said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant. As often as you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me. He's pointing towards the sacrifice. He's saying, look, the cup that you're drinking from right now, if you drink it all the way down, it ends in something really not good. But I'm going to take that cup out of your hand. I'm going to remove that. I'm going to give you a new cup. And that cup's not like the old cup. It's a new covenant. And it's going to be etched on the tablets of your heart, not etched in stone. It isn't going to be ten commandments. It's going to be love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And how do you fulfill that? By being found in him, the one who is coming. But I will put an end to the hand of those who afflict you who have said to you, lie down, that we may walk over you, who have laid your body on the ground. You see, 
God hasn't missed anything that's happened to the Jewish people. And he hasn't missed anything that's happened to you either. He's got his eyes on his children always, constantly. And what seems disproportionate and what seems horrific, what seems like, how can this possibly be? God is one day going to make right. He's going to fix every inequity that you've ever faced. And when he takes care of those things in his eternal kingdom, you're going to kind of look around and go, what was I worried about? What was I complaining about? What was I afraid of? Because Jesus is our everything. Close with Matthew chapter 25. It's from the latter part of that chapter. Come, you blessed of the Father, inherit the kingdom. I was hungry, and you fed me and thirsty, and you gave me drink. Lord, uh, when did we see you, they asked, inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, speaking of the Jewish people, you have done it unto me. Unto those on the left, depart you workers of iniquity, for I was hungry and you did not feed me and thirsty and you did not give me drink. Lord, when, when did we see you this way inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, my brethren? God has a plan. And sometimes we can't see it. But God has a plan. And I think there's a, a little bit of a, a beautiful warning, if a warning can be Beautiful. It's like, while we have opportunity, let's do good. While we have opportunity, let's serve the Lord. While we have opportunity, let's walk in the Spirit. While we have opportunity, let's let our salvation play out in the way we live our lives. Because Jesus is coming. And it might be sooner than you think. And so the prophet Isaiah has now painted this beautiful picture of the coming one. Over the next two studies, we're going to dissect chapters 52 and 53 and really look at what they were then offered in response to this. What's the solution? The suffering servant who took upon him the sins of the world. Jesus is still the only way. Let's worship him. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. We'll close in prayer. I know that was a lot, um, but we wanted to set the stage for what comes next so that we can take our time with 52 and 53. Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sending Jesus, your own son, the servant who suffered who bled, who died, who gave his back to the smiters, who allowed his beard to be plucked and his face mercilessly beaten. Thank you, Jesus, that you counted not these things as robbery, but you followed that road up from Jericho to Jerusalem to Golgotha 
to die in our place. And Lord, we know you love us. You love all of mankind. And so we pray for those in our lives that don't yet know you. God, make us gospel-centric people willing to share the truth about what your word says about the only way to get to heaven. Thank you for the beautiful picture of your incredible gift to us through the Messiah. We thank you for our Lord, our Savior, and our King who's going to come. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.